most adults are getting stressed faster than they're processing stress. Practice Vedic meditation consistently, you're processing stress faster than you're getting stressed. That flips the script, makes a huge difference. Less stress in our systems, we connect with being. Being is who we actually are. We are human beings, we're not human doings, we're not human postings on Instagrammings, we're human beings. This is for the others out there, the other ambitious people who want to play at a higher level in their life. It's time to get curious and get real. Join me, and together, let's find the others. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Find the Others podcast. I am your host, Joshua Church. Grateful to have you with us. New episodes are dropping every Wednesday and Sunday, so be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get the notification when a new episode comes out. And give me a follow on Instagram at Joshua Dean Church to catch different clips and highlights that I post. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, you find something that might be valuable, please be sure to share it with a friend who also might be into it so that together we can continue to grow our tribe of others. Today, I'm stoked to bring you a great conversation I had with Andrew Barrett. Andrew is a meditation teacher based in Venice, California. He teaches an ancient time-tested practice called Vedic meditation. Vedic meditation yields profound results through short, effective meditations that are easy to do. And the teaching itself is always comprehensive and personalized. He teaches meditation because the more people meditate, the happier and more enlightened the world becomes. We had a great conversation about meditation. Meditation 101, if you will. How it reduces stress, why it's more restful than sleep, how it's not about stilling your mind. If you don't know much about meditation and want an entry point, this conversation is definitely for you. And if you feel like you know a lot about it but want to take the practice deeper, this conversation is also for you. I personally have taken Andrew's course and it was a game changer for me. It's so approachable. He does such a great job of storytelling and really helping you understand the principles and incorporate it into your day-to-day life. Give him an ad on Facebook. The link is posted in the show notes and visit his site, the1percentproject.com to see his upcoming retreats, classes, and events. Without further ado, Mr. Andrew Barrett. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm excellent. So happy to uh, have you here. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. I uh, I get a sense you spend a lot of time on Zoom these days. <laughs> and it, it's one of the things that I, one of the great things that I offer in my profession is is the opportunity to spend more time on Zoom. <laughs> Uh, now, before before the pandemic, were you doing all of the retreats and everything and the sessions all in person for the meditation sessions? Everything was in person. And um, yeah, the short answer is everything was in person. And I had never done any retreats. I had done everything, you know, just med- sort of meditation courses. And then I had a lot. I ran a thing called Dating and Meditating, which was a weekly mm-hmm you know, um, relationship thing and, and various other like evening type stuff. Um, and then when the pandemic happened, everything went online, which turned out to be a great opportunity, especially for longer form retreats, because 
A, they work just as well online and B, you don't have to book a space and then sweat bullets about whether you're going to break even or right all that. So it was a, a really good, almost training wheels kind of thing of like, do, do the advanced retreat you've been planning, but haven't quite been ready to pull the trigger on. Yeah, that's actually great. And I'm sure you're able to reach more people geographically than you would have. That's the other thing is that I have, I have, you know, my last three courses have had people in, you know, England, Berlin, Australia, you know, which obviously if you're teaching in person, you don't get. So, yeah. yep. It's very, and this is all through the 1% project. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about the 1% project, the mission with it? It's super fascinating to me. Yeah. So the 1% project is an online meditation community. And it's based on the premise that when 1% of a population practices Vedic meditation consistently, um, because th that there's a benefit for the entire population. And the reason for this is sort of twofold. Uh, one, consciousness is a collective field. And so when a critical mass of people raise their own state of consciousness, that raises the level for the entire community. Hmm. And so we are leveraging technology. Um, we're literally using network computing in order to use network um, computing in a, at a metaphysical level, if you will. And that sounds kind of woo woo, but it actually works. Um, tell me more, tell me how it works. Well, part of how it works is that it, lots of people, most people say, this is pre-pandemic. They'd say, do you, do you go deeper in your meditations when you're in a group? 90% of hands right. would go up, right? You ask that to people now who've been meditating online for a year, and they say 90% of hands go up. So there's something about meditating in a group in, in both contexts that works and that people prefer, Right. So there's an added value there. Why, why do you feel that when we meditate together, we get a more profound experience or better yeah. experience? I think there are a couple of reasons, and I'm going to start with the more um, either esoteric or metaphysical, um, which is that consciousness is a collective field. Um, everything, th this is true scientifically. It is a scientific fact that at a subatomic level, everything is connected, Right. And therefore, every single thing is part of one greater thing. And so if you are conscious and I am conscious and each, each one of us is part of a greater whole, then that greater whole must also be conscious, right? And you could make the argument, and this is, this is the Vedic philosophy argument, the Eastern philosophy argument, is that that greater whole is not merely conscious, that it is, in fact, consciousness itself. Mm. And so when we um, connect with our own state of consciousness, when we go inside and connect with being, which is one of the fundamental aspects of meditation, when we do that together, it, it taps into that collective field. And so we are experiencing that collective field together and it tends to deepen the experience of the meditation. It tends to slow our nervous systems down more which means we go deeper and it's quieter and there's greater transcendence or going beyond thought. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, there are a couple practical aspects to it as well. And these are not mutually exclusive. I think they're all at play, which is people like doing stuff in community, right? There's an accountability to it. 
And there's also just a social thing to it. It's like, hey, Josh, how are you? How you doing? That's that feels good, right. and it and it helps us relax a little bit. And that also helps de-excite because you feel grounded. We're social creatures, right? So when we're in tribe, in community, we're in our natural element, and so we feel a sense of safety, and and that helps us de-excite as well. Mm. And I think also on the simplest, simplest level, that knowing that the teacher's keeping time uh, uh, lets you also just lift off the gas on one other thing than when you're meditating on your own. Right. Somebody else is flying the plane. So all of those things, I think, are at play. Very interesting. I, I love the the social component of it as well, the doing it in tribes component. Yeah. And then and then that builds that shared experience allows you to deepen your relationship with the people that you're with as well. That that and that's so much a part of the idea of the one percent because the one percent project is a community project. All of these people are getting to know each other. There's a we have a woman who does a group, she does her meditation, her morning meditation live inside our Facebook group. Every morning at 5 a.m., she lives in Portland. She's partnered up with a woman who lives in England who's doing her evening meditation, hmm. at, and they do them together. So cool. Right? They, they, they've never met in person, and they never would have met. And now they're, like, becoming buddies because they do right. this thing together. And there's an accountability there. They're, like, accountability partners. And then other people join in as well because they always know, oh, this is happening and if you're on the East Coast, well, it's eight o'clock in the morning. And if you're in Berlin, then it's whatever time it is there. So, yeah. So so under this premise, do you see meditating as something that you not only do to benefit yourself, but something to benefit the rest of the world from? Absolutely. I, I, I see meditating as being um, highly socially relevant. And I see meditation as being a win-win for ourselves and that it also provides invaluable community service yeah yeah beautiful yeah how how would you describe meditation right because it's obviously in, in 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 today's day and age we have so there's some it's it's present meditation we all hear meditation i think we all have different conceptions of what meditation actually means how do you describe it yeah um I, I, I will describe it two ways one way that I, i'm going to describe it by how i wouldn't describe it and then how i would describe it how I wouldn't describe it, and this is this is um, not to make anybody wrong, but to help people understand how it actually works. I would describe it. What it isn't is stilling your mind for a sustained period of time. Okay, because that's where people get caught up all the time. They think I'm supposed to be stilling my mind for five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, and now it's not still. I must be failing. This isn't for me, and then they stop doing it. Okay, so that's what it's not. What it is is de-exciting your nervous system for a sustained period of time. And de-exciting of your nervous system means slowing your nervous system down. And physiologically, that means that your heart rate slows down. And once your heart rate slows down, your breathing then starts to slow down with it. So the rate at which we process oxygen, metabolize oxygen, slows down. So we put ourselves in a state of de-excitation for a sustained period of time. And when we do that consistently, just like exercise is putting ourselves in a state of excitation for a sustained period of time, uh, when we do that in the other direction, there are profound benefits to that uh, mm. dynamic. What are some of the benefits that you've seen personally in your life with de-exciting yeah. the nervous system in that meditation? The, the, the main benefits 
I'll answer that two ways. The, the three things that happen when we put ourselves in that state, which are where all the benefits come from, are three things. We put ourselves in a state of deep rest. So we're resting very, very deeply, at least as deeply as when we sleep, if not deeper. Um, and that subsequently produces the release of stress. Most adults are getting stressed faster than they're processing stress. Practice Vedic meditation consistently, you're processing stress faster than you're getting stressed. That flips the script, makes a huge difference. Less stress in our systems, we connect with being. Being is who we actually are. We are human beings, we're not human doings, we're not human postings on Instagrammings, we're human beings. And so when we do, when those three things happen, we feel more ourselves. And, and the whole goal, in my opinion, of the whole purpose of life is to know who we are and to experience and express who we are. And, and who we are is a very optimistic, uh, ultimately an extremely optimistic thing. Um, so how has doing that consistently for me made a difference? Um, I'm dramatically more self-confident as a result of having a consistent meditation practice. Um, uh, in part, because I have like so much less anxiety than I used to have. Mm. I'm, and anxiety is just negative speculation about what could happen in the future, ultimately that reflects back to people finding out what a terrible person I am or what exactly you know our specific version of that is. I have so much less anxiety. I'm so much more capable of um, meeting demands getting things done and being clear which demands are self-expressive, which demands are just fundamentally necessary and which demands are things that people are trying to hoist on me that are like, this has, this has nothing to do with anything that, that, that is useful to my life, right? So I, there are many, many examples, but those two, which really are in many cases, um, the lessening of anxiety and the increasing of self-confidence um, they're not exactly like one goes down and the other goes up, but there's a lot of correlation between those two. Right. That's, that's amazing. Why do you feel that anxiety is so common and is so high right now with people in our world? I mean, right now or in general, because right in now general. it's easier to pinpoint with COVID right. and the right last now we got a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. The pandemic and all this political um, nonsense. I think that um, it circles back to the tribe idea. We evolved as hunter gatherers. And so we evolved to, and we evolved very, very sophisticated social uh, abilities and structures. Um, because even though we were the smartest animal out there on the Serengeti or wherever we were doing our hunting and gathering, we were also, um, when isolated, the weakest and most vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so we had to, um, for us to thrive, for us simply to survive, let alone thrive, um, we, our tribal systems had to work and they did. And look at, look at what happened. There's 7 billion plus of us, like it worked, right? Almost too well. So I think that part of the reason people have so much anxiety is that we, we live in a fundamentally unnatural system where the family unit which is a um, subset of the tribe, 
and you could almost make the argument that is a, a perversion of it, or at least a limited version of it, um, doesn't give us that sense of belonging, purpose, and, um, and, and family. And without that, we'd start to get anxious. And when we don't feel, when we don't have the core nutrients that we need, we, you know, with, with a lack of information, human beings tend to assume the worst and they tend to assume the worst about themselves. And anxiety is almost always self-referential. So we're sitting there assuming the worst, but he doesn't like me, she doesn't like me, I'm not gonna get this job, blah, 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 blah wherever those things come from. Um, so I think that that's, if you wanna get back to, to a theory on the source code of where all that anxiety comes from, that that's probably the best I have mm -hmm. at the moment. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Uh, the. The whole evolution of us as a, as a tribe is something very fascinating to me, especially around the and, and, and I felt this in my life with sports, with with friends where we're engaging in, in shared activities and really like shared suffering together and coming out on the other side. There's no room for anxiety with that when we're actually challenging ourselves or facing the challenge. And I wonder if part of it, too, is that it's it's so interesting that it seems like the easier it is to stay alive and to for to, to eradicate some of our problems that we spent most of our time doing, like anxiety and stress go up. Right. Yep. 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 What do you what do you see around that? Do you see anything there? Well, I think it's true. And I think that it's it is interesting, you know, sports as one example of like, of like road crew in college. I'm still friends with a lot of those guys. I played basketball. I played every sport in high school. I'm play. I'm still friends with all. I mean, those people are my family, you know, um, not just from basketball, but from being, being, being each other's tribe in high school. But without them, I think we would all agree without each other. We're not sure how we would have made it, hmm. how we would have become functioning adults. It wasn't just the family; it was this chosen family that we, you know, picked up along the way. So, um, I don't know if that answers the question yeah. specifically, yeah. but yeah. Now, I, I'd yeah. love because you, you've you've mentioned, um, you know, Vedic meditation and, and Eastern philosophy. I know that we did a whole like two or three day course on diving into this. So it might not be easy to give the, the bare bone, uh, you know, book spark notes summary version, but, but what, what is Vedic meditation? What are the different types of meditation? But I guess let's start with what Vedic meditation is and why you are passionate about practicing and teaching Vedic meditation. That's a great question. So what is Vedic meditation? Vedic meditation is a, um, a simple, natural, and effortless practice um, that uses a mantra, which is a specific kind of word, um, to de-excite the nervous system like we talked about before. The criterion for Ved what, what makes Vedic meditation unique in our world and what has made it so popular across the world is not only how effective it is, but um, how, how you get those benefits in short doses. Right, you don't need to meditate for like an hour every morning and an hour in the evening. Right, the maximum dosage is 20 minutes twice a day. Um, how it evolved is um, is interesting because it's a modern um, form of meditation, purpose built for people like you and me who have jobs and responsibilities and relationships and often children and so on. Right, so um, the person who 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 devised it was sort of looking around the world. He was responsible for lots of monks who were 
hiding away from the world in order to attain enlightenment. And he was like, what about Josh? What about Andrew? What about their girlfriends, you know, and their wives and their moms? Like these people are super stressed. Where's their meditation technique? And so he devised a technique that met, that had to meet three fundamental criterion. It had to be really easy to do because he was like, these folks don't need another damn thing to get good at, right? Um, it had to not take a lot of time because time was precious. And it had to go after the number one culprit in all of their lives, which was stress. And so they figured out this system. And in doing it, they semi-stumbled onto the most efficient and easy way to slow your nervous system down. So what Vedic meditation does that is distinct from other forms of meditation is, A, it's the easiest one to do. So it's the hardest one to screw up. Um, and it's the hardest one to feel like you're failing at. Once you know what the context is, it's like, you know, I, it's pretty hard. I can't really fail at this. And B, it de-excites your nervous system deeper than any other technique. And because the de-excitation is so deep, you need to do it for the least amount of time. Mm. So it's really, really efficient. So if you do no more than 20 minutes twice a day, you're processing stress faster than you're getting stressed and you feel like yourself again. You feel like a different person. Um, so in, that's a, a, in a nutshell, that's yeah. kind of the origin story and what it is. Really interesting. And, and is this measured? Like, I know obviously you have your own um, internal feedback of measuring, feeling less stressed by doing this as well. Are there, are there studies? Is there ways where this is measured, I would imagine? There are tons of them. One of the things that, so transcendental, Vedic meditation is an offshoot of transcendental meditation. So the techniques are essentially identical. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that transcendental meditation did over the 50 or 60 years that it's been around in order to, because they knew they were teaching to Westerners, so they wanted to speak to a Western mind. They were teaching an Eastern practice to Westerners, so they wanted to put it into a Western vernacular. So one of the things they did were countless studies on the efficacy of the technique in terms of reducing anxiety, um, uh, improving insomnia, and so on. So there's all kinds of science to back up the, uh, the, uh, their claims, if you will, including, yeah. including the idea that when 1% of a population meditates, there's a collective benefit. Yeah. Right. Wow. It, you know, seeing this as a tool, like I'm viewing this as a pill that you can take to process stress faster than you're getting stressed. And mm -hmm. it seems like probably a good place to start with the prescriptions before prescribing all these medications for anxiety or, yeah. or others, insomnia or other things, right? Absolutely. 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 And let me give you for, let me give you a, a very quick explanation of the actual physiology of meditation because this can be really helpful for people who might be listening to this and being like, okay, this is interesting, but I still am not quite sure how it works, right? Yep. Perfect. So how it works is really simple. Um, right now we're awake, right? And however many hours ago we were asleep. Um, and those are different neurological states, right? Um, what part of being awake tends to include uh, sitting up or standing, right? Most of the time, that's what's happening when we're awake. When we lie down, it tends to cue to the nervous system. Okay, well, let's go into a state of rest. We might doze off, right? Um, and there are other things like counting sheep and other methodology that will um, slow the nervous system down a little bit and help us drift off, right? 
things that people do to help them to, to, to sleep. So meditation um, is not simply sitting with our eyes closed. That's a, that's a, that it, it's, it's way more nuanced and sophisticated than that. What it is, is two things. To, to practice meditation or practice Vedic meditation correctly, we're sitting upright. And that means we are sending a cue to our nervous system that says, be awake, okay? Just by sitting, it says, okay, be awake. Um, but we also close our eyes, which is what we do when we go to sleep. And we think a mantra, which is a specific word, right? That, that, has a re that, that um, creates a reaction in the brain, okay? That is like a very sophisticated way of counting sheep. Mm -hmm. So we're cueing the nervous system to be awake by sitting upright and by closing our eyes and thinking the mantra, we're cueing the nervous system to be asleep. And what happens is those two cues meet and it creates a unique neurological state that is different than being asleep and it's different than being awake. It's the combination of both of them at the same time. And so meditation, why is it called meditation? It, in part because it means the medium of sleep and awake or the middle distance between being asleep and being awake. And when we're asleep and awake at the same time, our nervous system is in a state of de-excitation that is unique and different than when we're asleep or when we're awake or even when we're dreaming. And what it does is it combines all those neurologies into a unique state, into one singular state where all of those things are happening at the same time. And those neurologies, which are otherwise mutually exclusive, start to happen simultaneously. And suddenly you've put yourself into this downcycled, super efficient place where you are again, resting really deeply, processing stress and connecting with being. So that's how it works on a, you know, in a, in a simple uh, physiological way. Brilliant. I love how you explain it too, because I remember when I, when I did the, the course with you and you explained it in a way that that makes sense to me. I think that makes sense. Is yeah. it, did it take a lot of work for you to to craft this this way of telling this or relating or resonating? I know probably some of this comes from how Vedic meditation or TM has has been teaching things, but this is obviously also your unique spin or flair or flavor to it. Has this taken work to craft to find those words that actually resonate and land with people? Yeah, it's it's been both because you're trained. You were we're trained as teachers, and and the training's really good, and so you're given the source code. A, you practice it a lot, right? And B, you're given the source code of like, here's how to teach a course, right? Um, and here's how to sequence it and structure it and stuff like that. And that's a super valuable DNA to work with. And then yes, over the years of, um, I'm one of the first teachers, I may be one of the only teachers who even when I was teaching in person, turned it all into a visual presentation so most teachers are just sitting there talking to you. I'm mm -hmm. showing you slides, as you know, and telling you stories because an image is worth a thousand words. Uh, people learn through images and they learn through stories, right? Um, and then over, and because it's, it, as you know, once you know the technique, the, to practice the technique is really simple, right? It doesn't right. take long actually to learn or practice the technique, but the nuances of, of what's possible inside of it as a practitioner 
and also the nuances of how to articulate these distinctions kind of goes on forever. And so, yeah, over the course of now five, five, five or six years that I've been teaching it, you figure out different ways to articulate these things. And sometimes they just come up in the spur of the moment. And sometimes you've been, you know, working at it for a little while and you finally crack the nut. Yeah. Right. Where, where did the Star Wars reference come from? I remember you, the homework you gave us was go watch Star Wars. Tell me more about that. <laughs> that came from, all right. That came from a joke. I mean, I, I'm a big, I'm a big mu music and movie nerd. Right. Yeah. And I was as, I was as as struck as impressed by Star Wars um, as any kid of my era, right? So, um, and they hit they like they hit you deeply, but you don't know why it's so deep. Because it's like you know, on one level, my parents were like, oh, "You're flying around in space. This is for kids," you know. I'm like, it's deeper than that, right? Um, so when I was on my teacher training, so the the guy who the the, the the guy who devised the system I just described, who said it has to meet these three criteria. He was such, his name was Guru Deva, and he's the guru of the progenitor of TM and VM. When he died, he was such a, a famous and potent saint um, that they couldn't normally, so in India, two things happen when somebody dies. A normal civilian, their body gets put in the river, right? It goes downstream. Uh, a saint or a holy man, they bury them in the ground. That's a little bit uh, higher status or whatever. They knew if they buried Guru Deva, um, that everybody would immediately dig up his grave and steal his bones because they felt they were holy. And so they were like, okay, what do we do? So they just they decided to encase his body in concrete, like a like a concrete coffin or sarcophagus, right? And they floated it out on a barge into the middle of the Ganges and they slid it off and it dropped down. The Ganges is very deep. So it dropped down like 200 feet and it's still, that's where he is to this day, right? And jokingly, when I heard this story from my teacher, I said, that's just like Han Solo in Carbonite. <laughs> and he said, well, that's where that idea came from. George Lucas, was a TM meditator well before he wrote Star Wars. No way. And I, and I was like, oh my God. And so when I then went back and started reviewing the movies, knowing that and knowing that, knowing that, um, so the Maharishi, who was the guy who um, founded Transcendental Meditation and was the leader of it for many, many years, the Maharishi was like four foot 11, um, and was Indian. So he spoke with a very Indian syntax, right? Um, when George Lucas needed a, a teacher for Luke Skywalker, he invented this character named Yoda, which is one word away from, one letter away from yoga, mm -hmm. and modeled him completely after the Maharishi. Wow. Super short, Indian syntax, incredibly powerful, you know, kind of all-knowing teacher. So it's baked in there in ways that people don't understand. Why would they, you know, that none right. of us know. But when you start to then unpack it, it becomes this incredible teaching tool for Vedic philosophy. So cool. The force, of course. May the force be with you. May the force be with you. Absolutely. Yep. And when you and when the universe is acting through you, 
then the you are the force becomes your in when when you're um when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in the world right and you know it because it feels aligned and the the universe is helping you set things up right it's called the support of nature that suddenly people the right people are showing up and all of these things are happening and you know it you're finding your voice that's when the force which is a universal force is beginning to act through you and what you are doing specifically is being expressed through your voice which is your lightsaber which has your specific color it's the same thing but it has to be personalized for the universe to facilitate evolution it needs people to do the work it brings the impulse to the personal state and then if a person chooses to follow that impulse then they are mastering i mean it's again the metaphor is being a jedi right but you can apply that to, you know, now they weren't talking about the Jedi doesn't come from Vedic philosophy. That was George Lucas made that up, but um, it's the same yeah. idea. So what do you feel like our work here is to do as humans? It's a really good question. It's a really, really good question. I mean, big, big picture. I think our work right now is very, very um, timely and almost precarious because I've been saying for a long time that, that we are headed in one of two directions, Star Trek or the Road Warrior. You know, it's like, which pick one? Because the way the world is going, it's gotta make a choice. And one of those is more egalitarian and infinitely more advanced and less racist by, you know, a lot. And the other one is post-apocalyptic, you know, fight killing people to just have enough basic needs to survive and government is collapsed and, you know, and all of that. Um, so what, what do I think our work is? I think our work as individuals is to find out, you know, what color our lightsaber is and, and how our individual skill sets can best be used, usually in collaboration with others, towards a goal that is greater than ourselves. Um, and I think that hopefully enough people doing that is going to steer the ship in a direction that is sustainable. But a lot's going to, and if we do that, a lot's going to happen between now and then, right? A lot of eggs are going to get broken to, to, to make that omelet, but hopefully that's the omelet we make and not just every egg gets broken and it's just like, okay, everyone for themselves. I really like that. I really like that way of articulating and viewing that because that's by definition, that's what change change happens that way. That's how growth happens. It's a it can be a painful process, but cracking the eggs and viewing what's happening just in our world, I think in general is like eggs being cracked to make the omelet. And I, I guess it is, it is up to us to make sure of that. How, yes. how can we continue to make sure of that? I don't, it, it's a good question. I don't know. There are some things that I think about when, and I don't want to get political, but there's some things that I think that need to happen that people are, I mean, this isn't too political, but if you watch um, the social dilemma, right mm -hmm. on Netflix, it's like, okay, so uh, we all use social media and social media has a lot of value to it. And there's a lot of good there. Who knew that it was sort of predicated on a fundamentally divisive business model? Right. Did that have, did that have to happen? And look at the costs, right? And 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 one of the costs is truth. 
well, how do you have a how do you have a, a functioning society if you don't have truth? Mm. And I don't mean have things you agree on. I mean have actual truth, right? So that those are real problems, um, and they're going to require political will, and they're going to require you know corporate will, and they're going to require individuals to um, to change things. Usually, people have way more power than they think they do. Mm. Um, and, and finding, and usually, usually it's working together collaboratively, yeah. not like you or me having a, some brilliant idea that's going to save the day. It usually doesn't work like that. Right. Um, but there are things like that, that need to be addressed that when we, when there is less, you know, they always say war is good business, right? Well, it turns out if you look at the source code of Facebook as just one example in that film, well, war is good business. Mm. But we've had we've had economy that is funded by advertising for decades. We all grew up watching TV. It was funded by advertising, but it wasn't pitting one state against another state, right? So can can we do this in a way that is profitable but also not immoral and destructive? Right. Those are good ways to start. And again, the people who are the people who are paying with their eyeballs or whatever, they're the ones that have all the power. Yeah. So what's the exact solution? I don't know, but there's definitely leverage. Yeah. I, I like the idea of scaling that down to, to the individual person and the individual power that we have and wrapping it in back into meditation as well is that, you know, when we're walking around more in our state of being, when we're walking around and we are shining our color of our lightsaber and we are acting from that place, that that's having a profound ripple effect and impact and that it's a responsibility, not just for our purpose of thriving and being a human being and enjoying life perhaps, but also for that ripple effect, uh, which is why I love the 1% project and that idea of that 1% because then it shifts it from, yeah, I know meditating is good for me to do and I feel better when I do, but also it's not just about me. There's all these other implications that it's actually about and that might be the way to do it. That's right. And, and, and I do think that, I do think it is one of the ways to um, move the needle in a positive direction. Yeah, totally. And I, I, f I feel like that there's almost this tipping point. I, do you feel like there's going to be a tipping point where where the, the ship steers into the direction of Star Trek or into the direction of evolution of, of goodwill? It's a really good question. And I am definitely not in the prediction business, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there are definitely tipping points. Um, We've certainly just watched a lot of inflection points. People like, to, that's a big word on TV news. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. know the answer to that. I do wonder this though. Will there be a point where, because social media is so influential and so it's, ne it's, it's necessary, like newspapers were necessary, or TV news was necessary in the past. Um, so we're not going to get rid of it, but will there be a point where enough people who are Facebook users, which there's certainly plenty of them to do this, they're going to say for the month of, you know, July in 2022, we're shutting down. Mm. We are not going to be on your network. So basically there's going to be a strike. And it says that unless the fundamentals of this business change in a way that it's not founded on division, we're going to, we're going to move on to a different network. You know, 
because it, all it is is a group of people. You know, right. it's, look at look at um, look at Clubhouse. Clubhouse yeah. didn't exist five minutes ago, and it's like everybody in the universe is on it. So it's possible to um, it's possible to change. It's possible to jump from one lily pad to one that isn't so toxic. Yeah, or at least affect change by saying we're not paying for this for this amount of time until you figure it out. And if you don't, we're leaving. Right. That's great. I like that. I really like that approach too. Cause again, it brings the power back into our court, which is where it is in the, in, in the system that we're, we're playing in for sure. Um, Andrew, when did you, I was curious to know, like, when did you decide, cause you said five or six years you've been teaching. When did you reach the point where you decided from practicing to, okay, I need to make this a mission of mine to now teach this or bring this. What, what was the story yeah. there? It's a, it's an interesting story. I, the, the, ver, the, the super short one is I learned to meditate and took to it like a duck to water um, and took to my teacher like a, like a duck to water and um, was, did every, you know, a rounding retreat with him, which is like an advanced, did every advanced course I could with him and um and so it started to become an inevitable thing that the experience of the teacher training which is a very specific and intensive thing that became something that i was like okay i want to do that whatever i whatever i'm going to do with my life is is going to be that's going to be a threshold i go through right um on a practical level it was so there was something about it that was just like i'm going to teach this i'm so fascinated by it that it makes sense for me to share it with others um, and in a, in a competent professional way. Um, there was also, uh, I was teaching yoga at the time, which was, which I defined as a body job. And I was like, I'm going to give myself a promotion, both in terms of, you know, yoga teachers don't, their salaries are generally quite low. So I was like, I'm going to give myself a promotion, both in terms of salary, but most importantly, is that I'm going to switch from a body job to a mind job, hmm. because I'm a mind job kind of guy. And I'm kind of, not that this is true for other yoga teachers, but for me, I was like, I'm kind of slumming over here. I'm really, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not living up to my potential. So this gave me the ability to apply my intellect into a profession that I was into a subject matter that I was fascinated with. And then it also turned out down the road that it also allowed me to, uh, it required me to um, apply, develop and apply an entire entrepreneurial skill set that I had never, um, that I'd never really even considered was uh, necessary or even understood was, was as much a part of me as well as it turned out to be. So, so good. Yeah. And it's been a, uh, it's been a pretty cool evolution over the past f five years, six years or so. It, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. You know, I started in the, in the, in theater. I started in, in, I went to film school and, and worked in the theater, but everything that I wrote um, was somehow based in Eastern philosophy. Like the first screenplay I wrote as a, as a, in, in was um, in school was about a musician who's a master meditator. I'd never meditated before. And I wrote this script about a musician who is a master meditator and he channeled the music of the spheres and it became so popular 
that he became the biggest musician in the world, but he had these crazy issues. So he was also kind of a sociopath. And so his giant concert he was going to do was prevent possibly going to destroy the world. Right. (laughs) And then when I was in, yeah. And then when I was in theater, I literally was part of this met what was called a metaphysical comedy. It was a yoga comedy um, that we had written. So when I was in the creative arts, everything was bottom noted by meditation and Eastern philosophy. And when I became a meditation teacher, everything is bottom noted by narrative, storytelling, Star Wars, the Beatles, you know, there's a huge Beatles component to a lot of the stuff I teach. So um, either way, it's still me. It's just it's just sort of which one's the up front and which one's in the back. So cool. Yeah. It's just a, it's an expression of, of the different components of who you are. I love that you're incorporating them both and have been even subconsciously exactly. before you made it an intention to do so. Exactly. Really cool. Well, Andrew, this has been awesome. Thank you so much um, for sharing this and really breaking it down in a, in a digestible way. Is there, is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners as we, uh, as we wrap here? The only thing I'd share, which is repeating it a little bit, which is this, is that um, uh, meditation's as good for you as people are telling you, as good for you as you're hearing people talk about it. And um, there's zero need to be intimidated by it because it's actually really, really easy to do um, once you've learned how to do it correctly. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, was that your experience? It was like, oh, this isn't this is totally yeah it was like wait it's actually is approachable and i i mean i i come from the yoga where i did my yoga teacher training as well and i was big in that world but it never really broke into meditation before doing um your course and then just walked away being feeling it immediately and being like okay yeah there's this makes sense now yeah once you demystify it and you understand the simple physiology of it and also have the experience which you had that it's like, oh, it's both instant gratification and long-term benefit, which is, I think, the only thing I've found that ever fits both of those. Right. Uh, it's like, that's part of why it's so life-changing was people are like, I had no idea this was so easy and so interesting. Right. And the fact that I can do this in a giant community of people it's, that makes it so much more appealing there's it's like, oh, oh I, okay, now I'm in, right? As opposed to like, this is for people who, who are different than me. It's right. not, it's, if you have a nervous system, it's, and you have, and you want to sleep better or you have <laughs> anxiety or whatever, you just want to be a higher performer. This is for you. This That's what you. I was saying. Wonderful. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. And I'll make sure to share all the, all the links and, uh, and whatnot in the, in the show notes and in the intro. So, um, we'll make sure we get people, uh, have a next step here to, uh, to chat with you more, to, uh, connect with you in one of the retreats if they, uh, if they feel interested in doing so. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Awesome, Andrew. Appreciate it, man. Take care. We'll talk soon. You too. Bye.